0: I'm Ali Weiss, and I'm obsessed with the people, ideas, and experiences that break the rules, beat the odds, or are considered socially unacceptable. And this is season four of Tales of Taboo. Each week, I gather anonymous confessions from my listeners around the world who've existed in elusive subcultures, ventured down the road less traveled, made serious mistakes, and achieved extraordinary victories. Some of them call my hotline and others will send written stories for me to read. These confessions are raw, they're honest, they're even downright shocking sometimes, but they always deliver the most incredible life lessons and encourage us to consider why we're all so afraid to be different. And for season four, I'm introducing a brand new twist. I'm starting each episode with my own, no holds barred, on the record confession about the topic we are discussing. This week, it's the world of cult boutique fitness. Let's get into it. I first took up intensive exercise when I was in an unhealthy relationship in my early 20s. As part of his quote-unquote hippie, free-loving, Brooklyn spiritual existence, my then-boyfriend naturally loved yoga and meditation. So in a classic younger girlfriend pick-me move, I began practicing to earn his approval. I'm not sure it did, but it inarguably became a very useful, soothing tool when I wouldn't hear from him for days at a time. When he'd get manic-depressive, be off doing drugs somewhere, maybe cheating on me, I don't really know. Feeling rejected and unstable, I simultaneously discovered the bar on steroids classes at Physique 57. This man that I adored kept letting me down, but you know what would always be there for me, like clockwork? 50 minutes of pulsing and plieing. As my dependency on these workouts increased, I continued to get thinner. So all anybody could focus on was how quote-unquote great I looked and not the questionable status of my relationship. Crisis averted. Years later, my impulse is still the same. When I went through a breakup last November, working out was the first thing I did in my healing process. But in retrospect, in a way... Becoming obsessed with working out probably delayed my healing process because I dumped all of my sadness and rage into getting fit rather than sitting with it, letting it flow through me and eventually leave my body. When I show up to a bar or Pilates class in a fancy sparkling clean studio at 9 o'clock in the morning in my leotard and my leggings and my grippy socks and my hair in a slick bun, my face gleaming with vitamin C serum, an extra-large water bottle filled to the brim, anxiety and self-doubt and purposelessness and fear of dying alone all cease to exist. Everything about me and what happens in that room is precise exacting and where i need it to be for an hour i am in control which is a sensation that's incredibly difficult to come by a consistent hard workout gives me a tangible set of goals and a way to watch myself grow and improve I can daydream about mastering the exercise. I have a place to go every single day and a sense of routine within the madness of other components of my personal and my professional life. And I know I'm not alone in this. Between cycling, rowing, boxing, running, CrossFit, Pilates, yoga, bar... There's a boutique fitness company for every specific kind of neurosis, insecurity, and aspiration, especially in a place like New York. You know, a contributor said something really interesting in the eating disorder confessions from season one. She noticed that as a very tall woman, when her body was smaller and narrower, men seemed to take her more seriously as a person. Rather than an object of desire, they approached her with more tenderness and regarded her as a sensitive being. Maybe her being thinner made it look like she needed to be taken care of, right? Which is not something that's immediately attributed to quote unquote larger women. As someone who's five foot nine and a half, almost five, ten, and has always been curvy and had, um, assets, let's call them that. I'm really inclined to agree with her. Left to its own devices with no intensive exercise or mindful eating, my body naturally sits at a size 8 or a 10. Between my height and my build and my eyebrows and like my personality and my unwillingness to shy away from talking about brutally honest things, my professional confidence and curiosity can easily be mistaken for emotional and sexual dominance or having this overwhelming self-sufficiency. Of course, I'm like capable of taking care of myself, but that doesn't mean that I always want to. In fact, more often than not, I don't want to. I'm very sensitive. I get lonely easily. I need a lot of physical touch, hugs, cuddles, I make so many decisions in my day-to-day life that it's such a luxury to be in the company of somebody who can make them for me or collaborate with me on them. And what I've noticed is that when I'm smaller, when I admittedly proudly wriggle into size four dresses and jeans, it's easier for me to fall into this feminine role. It's not so much that I'm acting any differently. It's that from what I've observed snap judgments about my character are not made as quickly by men. And I have more of a chance to actually feel seen. Maybe this is a complete projection. Like maybe I'm delusional. I I don't know, but it is how I feel. And it was really validating to hear the former contributor express a similar sentiment. Also, marketing tactics from both Boutique companies and their customer bases, too, can be extremely powerful and difficult to ignore. Here's the deal. If you have ever been to a bar studio in Manhattan, like Physique 57 or Bar Method or Pure Bar, especially early in the morning— you have definitely seen an overwhelming majority of women who are taut and toned and tiny. They're either naturally beautiful or have the best injections or surgery. They're draped in these designer two-piece sets, and almost all of them are wearing very large engagement rings dozens of people all in the same room nailing the conventional idea of what's attractive and they appear to have their lives all neat and orderly and they are all rocking huge sparkly diamonds and it's not just young women either like there's plenty of clients in their 50s 60s 70s who are literally so shredded absolutely shredded kicking ass never stopping to gasp for their breath and they're also wearing big rings It's like they've had a lifetime of hotness and good fortune. And, you know, we're a bunch of brilliant degenerates here, so obviously we all know that a big ring cannot attest to the quality of a marriage. A woman's bodily shape or exercise preferences say nothing about her ability to be loved. We know this. And, in fact, there's a gargantuan chance that Her instability and insecurity is what's driving her to class too. But it's hard to ignore the messaging that's consistently reflected in the studio's mirrors, which is that there's a correlation between having a certain aesthetic, a certain poise, a certain attitude, and having what society tells us is a happy life. It's that like clean girl aesthetic, if you will, and I fall for it time and time again. And the same goes for yoga. I love the way that yoga makes me feel. It's been a godsend for the rehabilitation of my broken back and managing my awful TMJ, but I'm even more dependent on it emotionally, and I seek a very particular environment in the classes that I take. What I want is escapism. I want to be sold spiritualism and profundity and a sense of practicing for something larger than myself. I want a room full of Buddhas and shrines and chanting and Palo Santo and sage and essential oils and experimenting with breathwork and quotes about letting go with uh, of what it is that doesn't serve me. It's really not so much that I practice this kind of spirituality in my day-to-day life. I mean, anyone who knows me knows this. You guys who listen know this. Like, I eat meat, I drink, I make bad decisions. Sometimes I've harmed myself or put myself in positions to be harmed. But reality is the last thing I want in 60 to 75 minutes of yoga, I want to feel like I'm capable of reaching enlightenment. (laughs) Enlightenment, quite frankly. I'm like laughing at myself, but it's true. I want to lay in shavasana feeling the holy fucking spirit, watching light radiate out of my aligned, stretched out chakras. Like I'm not interested in an agnostic, poorly lit studio where we downward dog to a Lizzo soundtrack. I literally want to be candle lit to the gods. And as we can hear, there are so many issues with this. <laughs> there are so many issues with these cult like boutique fitness businesses and their methodologies. Issues like cultural appropriation, class discrimination emotional manipulation. And rest assured, today's anonymous confessors, who all currently work or previously worked in some of the nation's most well-known studios, are about to take no prisoners when talking about these issues. But see, what I did not want to do was present this episode fashioning myself as superior. I can see beyond the problem on like a cultural level. I can critique it, but do I rise above it? Absolutely not. I'm a part of the problem. At best, I practice body neutrality. I don't want to feel pressure to say that I love my body at any size in order to be a good role model because, I, guys, I don't. I don't want to feel pressured into saying that I am my best me, my happiest me, my most confident me at any size because I'm not. There's a very specific set of rules and regulations that have to be in place for me to feel really genuinely good about myself physically and emotionally. If you guys think that's toxic, that's something I'm just going to have to live with. Like maybe it is, but I feel better being truthful about it. Exercise is just as much of a crutch for me as it is for everyone else. And yes, I say that as someone who's also had 20 years of therapy. With body neutrality, you're given permission to be radically honest, which is how I live my life, as you know, and how I believe on a grander scale we create a better world. I don't hate my body at all but I'm not obsessed with it either and in either case I kind of want to stop putting so much emphasis on it. It's literally just a body. We all have one. My lovely listeners, I want to hear all of your questions, concerns, and responses, however complicated they might be to this topic. I would also love to hear your own relationships to exercise and experiences with buying into expensive cult-like boutique fitness off the record. So you can reach me to chat or spill your secrets at confessions at allyweissworld.com. I will put that email into the episode notes as well. And now, without further ado, this is Tales of Taboo.
1: I've been working in the Legree industry for seven to eight years now. I started out as front desk, and then I transitioned into teaching. I still work in Legree. I love the method. I love the studio that I'm at. I've just taught at some pretty toxic studios over the years specifically the very first one I ever taught at. And that studio I found as a client. I walked into this beautiful, sparkly, feminine studio on the west side where all the teachers looked so fit and pretty. And I took my first class and I just, I fell in love. I loved the workout. I saw changes in my body I hadn't seen from any other type of workout. And I immediately knew that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a teacher. I was working in the corporate world. I hated my job and I wanted out. So I met with the owner and she seemed so nice, so pretty, so sweet, so warm. And I was just excited to work for her. And so I started working front desk because they had already started a new training group and I was told I would have to wait for the next one. So I'm working front desk and I should have known there were lots of red flags already, but I was in my early 20s, so I stuck it out. But if anything happened in class as front desk, I would get blamed for it. But when the opportunity came up to finally go through the teacher training, I wanted to teach so bad that I just stuck with it. And so I went through the certification, which is just a one weekend certification. And then the studio itself had a training program that they required you to go through, which was about six months, I think. So you get certified and technically you can teach Legree after the certification, but we still had to go through a six month training program. And it was awful. I mean, the girls who were taking us through it were not kind to us. They were mean. There was a lot of mean girling, you know, a lot of talking behind each other's backs, you know. When somebody's talking to you about the other trainers and the other trainees and they're all talking shit about each other, you know that they're doing it about you as well. And that's the kind of culture that that place had. So the training itself was a lot of, oh, my gosh, you're so great. You're going to be so good. And then a lot of you suck. You're never going to be good at this. You sound too monotone. You sound too much like a cheerleader. You're screeching. You're not holding yourself upright. You don't look the part. You, it was awful. Just picking us apart constantly. It was never constructive feedback. It was always just cruel. And so after I made it through the training program, we then had to audition. I think I had to audition three or four times before I finally got a class, and I got One class on the schedule. One class. I can't quit my job for one class. And, you know, I would ask for more. And she would just tell me that I had to wait. I had to pay my dues. And while this is all going on, I mean, we're still getting treated horribly, not just by the owner, but by the instructors as well. One of the worst was when you get put on the floor. When we became certified, when we went through the training program, we had to assist in classes. So that meant we had to go to a class that another teacher was teaching and we had to assist them. So we would essentially adjust the clients while they were teaching class, which is something that you would do in a normal class where you were teaching. But we had to go in and assist and help teach. Well, because we're the ones touching the clients and because we're the ones interacting with the clients, the clients would then relate to us and want to talk to us. So after class one day, a client came up to me and said, thank you so much for your help. I really enjoyed that. Like, when do you teach? Because I wasn't teaching the class. I was just assisting. And I said, you know, I actually don't have a class on the schedule right now. I'm brand new, but I am teaching some free mock classes if you would ever like to attend one of those. And I just left it at that. And I was friends with the teacher that I was assisting. Like, we hung out outside of the studio. And she went behind my back and told the owner that I was trying to poach her clients. And the owner called me, yelled at me, and told me that that was a fireable offense. And I told her what happened. And she said, you haven't been teaching as long as this other girl. I'm going to believe her over you. I lost a bunch of weight through the method, and I had weight to lose. I wasn't out of shape, but regardless, I felt so good about my body and where I was at. And the owner approached me one day and said, I noticed you've lost some weight. And I said, yeah, isn't it great? This method works. I love the way I look. And she said, you can't lose any more weight. And I didn't know what to say. I laughed, and she said, no, I'm serious. You cannot lose any more weight. You won't look good anymore. And I didn't know how to take that because she's one of the tiniest people I've ever met. And a lot of the instructors were very tiny. There are a lot of eating disorders in that studio. And I'm feeling good and healthy and strong. And she told me I was not allowed to lose any more weight. And then she started regulating that we had to wear makeup when we were teaching. We had to have our hair done when we were teaching. We weren't allowed to wear crop tops or sports bras. We had to be fully covered. We couldn't wear shorts. It was a very weird vibe, but she really controlled the way we were, the way we could look, the way we could act, the way we could talk, how we did our hair and our makeup. And in my head, I was like, this is fitness. We should look like we work out. But that was very much not the case. So when I got put on the floor, I was given one class and one class only. And I reached out to an instructor that I knew at another studio. And I said, I want to get some advice. What do you think about this situation? I'm miserable. She makes me cry all the time. Everyone here is miserable. And she said, come teach at the studio I'm at. And he said, well, how much does that studio pay? And then I found out how severely underpaid we were at that studio. I think I was making, and I don't mind saying this because this is not what I make now. I think I was making like $30 a class. You cannot survive off of $30 a class. You would have to teach an extreme amount of classes. And when I reached out to this other instructor, I found out how little I was making and how much I could be making. And I just said, screw it. I'm leaving. I don't want to be here anymore. And I reached out to the owner, and I was very scared of her. And I said, hey, this Sunday is my last class. I'm not going to teach again after this. And she said I was unprofessional, that she had put all this time and money into me. Mind you, we did not get paid during the training. I did six months of work not getting paid and then I was getting paid $30 a week for one class. I did not feel bad about leaving her hanging and I wasn't leaving her hanging because she had a group of new instructors who all desperately wanted classes. So I left and I went to another studio and it was the best decision I made.
0: Written submission number one. I worked at the Bar Method in San Diego as an instructor. Back in 2008, Bar was still pretty new and had a fun, underground, if you know you know feel. It's required to be a client for at least six months before being permitted to audition to become an instructor, and since I had never worked in the fitness industry before, being selected to audition was a huge honor. Teacher training was about two and a half hours away from where I live, so I would drive up once a week for a couple of months. The training was super intense and run by someone who used to be a dancer. He fat shamed other trainees, telling one of them that she didn't have the typical bar method body and could stand to lose 10 to 15 pounds. We officially trained from 12 to 7 p.m. and were encouraged to take the class he taught right before at 9.30 or 9.45. I think we got one break, but it was usually just to have a coffee from the coffee machine. I remember his watchful gaze when we would eat and I would end up nibbling on celery sticks to avoid any comments from him. He had a college degree in psychology and took pleasure in learning about our insecurities and then exploiting them to break us down. Some trainees would end up in tears. But people who took his training also had a weird sense of pride about how he, quote, broke them down and then built them back up. I thought it was absurd then and I think it's outrageous now. I liked the workout, but the pressure to be thin was so negative and toxic. At one time, I was doing three workouts per day to look the part. I was hyper-focused on how my body looked. It was impossible not to be when you spend your day in a studio filled with mirrors. I lost some weight during the intense training process, and it was praised, which just fed on itself. I was eating, but was hyper-vigilant about what I put into my body, and it wasn't enough for how much activity I was doing. It was also mentioned in the instructor manual that you need to take a certain amount of classes per week to ensure that your body looks a certain way, and this was a non-negotiable. We had one client who we wanted to send in for training, but she was a little bigger, maybe size 6 or 8, than the standard instructor, who was a size 0 or 2, and we had to get special approval from corporate. Instructors were told that if someone who was 30-plus pounds overweight came to try class, We were supposed to tell them to lose weight and then come back to try. We were instructed to give some line about it not being safe for their joints. I got paid $20 an hour. The flat rate started at $20 per class. It didn't matter if the class had four people or 32 people. The rate was the same. You were required to be there at least 15 minutes before class and to know every client's name. It definitely wasn't enough money. They had instructors on 1099s when they were forcing them to act as employees. I'm shocked they weren't sued. They've since modified this. There really wasn't a benefit of building a following since you got paid the same amount if your class was packed or empty. That said, teaching a fun class and getting to know the clients and what motivates them helped me build a following. The original group of instructors at the studio was so fun and lovely until things expanded and all hell broke loose. There was a lot of pandering to clients and one particular class where it was known that the clients basically ran the show and pushed the instructor around. The clients took it upon themselves to mess with the lights, fans, open windows, and do whichever exercise they wanted instead of what was being taught. There was also an instructor who spread lies about various people she felt threatened by over the years. For example, there was an instructor in training who was beyond gorgeous, completely stunning, and the one who was spreading lies went to the owner and made up some story about how the trainee wasn't a good fit for the studio and was nasty to her. The trainee had spent months of her time training, only to be told that she couldn't teach there at the last minute. The lying instructor also made it challenging for people to return from maternity leave by being rude to them because she was threatened by clients preferring to take their class over hers. It was really sad that a once great tight-knit community of instructors who were close friends turned into this backstabbing drama. I had a sick parent during my time as an instructor and it was lovely to have a group of people to support me. I was always very clear that if my parents' condition changed, I would need time away. Because we were responsible for covering our own classes, I was still working while my parents spent their last days on hospice and planned planned to return more fully after they passed. After the passing, the owner had shifted my schedule around so that it wasn't sustainable for me to work. Instead of a few classes in a row, it was broken up so it would be one class, then a large break, then another break, then another class. It made it so that I couldn't supplement my income by working anywhere else because the breaks weren't long enough to do anything productive. One of the instructors started having busier classes while I was away, and I guess she told the owner that I wasn't mentally ready to return, which wasn't true. I was looking forward to getting my life back. The owner then told me she didn't think I was committed to teaching, even though I spent seven days a week at the studio for years between teaching and taking mandatory classes. When I called them out on it, I was screamed at and told never to return to the studio, which seemed like an out-of-proportion and unbelievable response. It still distresses me to think about how crazy of a conversation it was, especially during a painful and challenging time in my life.
2: I worked at Pure Bar. At the time, I was a school teacher, and I was looking for a summer job. I saw a post online that they were hiring a crew for the new studio that was opening and I thought it'd be a really cool job because I enjoyed working out. I had taken a few pure bar classes as a guest of one of my friends that was a member and I didn't really know what I would get myself into. I thought maybe I'd just be working a desk, but I got a call from the studio owner when she was hiring. She was really excited that I had teaching experience and that I also had experience playing an instrument because most of pure bar or the workout itself is all about being tied to music. So it's like a mix of Pilates, yoga, and bar, of course. So those fundamentals of ballet, but it's about an hour long workout all set to a choreography or music. So having that, they call it musicality background, was a really big plus for her when she was hiring me. I wasn't necessarily a fan or even really a client upon starting. I was just looking for an easy summer job that could maybe turn into something more. I really thought I would just be an admin, but then she recruited me to become a teacher, go through the teacher training program, actually go on a weekend trip to one of the Pier Bar headquarters to be trained, and she paid for my training in the process. Obviously, every gym does these things differently, but like they count the number of classes you go to and you get celebrations when you hit 50 and 100. So when you're new and you see that, you get really excited and you want to achieve those goals. So I think that was a really big part. And it also just showed this lifestyle that looking back felt really or seems really unachievable now. But I guess at the time, like clean girl aesthetic and things like that weren't really a thing, but that was very much the vibes. That the studio and the people that worked at the studio that were really well known instructors, really popular, gave off. They're going through their training, working there and working out there for several years, I did enjoy it, but I don't think it's the best workout. I don't think I saw major changes in my body because of Pure Bar. And also looking at other clients throughout time, I don't think they did either. And that might not be why they're working out there. So I, I don't wanna sound like a terrible person by saying, hey, this doesn't work because you could be going there to fuel other areas like your brain or you just really love the people there, or the music, and that's totally fine. But I definitely think there are more effective ways to work out than Pure Bar. I also think it fosters a culture of overworking out. They do so many competitions, like how many classes can you get during March Madness? Just things like that to compete. And it really fostered an unhealthy sense of like overdoing it with your body and overworking out to the point of exhaustion. Overall, it wasn't that difficult to become a Pure Bar instructor. Biggest role that I would say was kind of hard to follow for me as a new instructor, a new member of Pure Bar was just the dress code. Totally fine with wearing leggings and a tank top. I have plenty of those, but we had to wear clothes that were sold in the studio or Lululemon. At the time, again, I was a school teacher and I didn't have a ton of expensive workout clothes. I used my first Pure Bar paycheck to buy a Pure Bar tank top and a pair of leggings. I think I got a 20% discount and I wore that for pretty much every class that I taught. I can remember the studio owner making comments in a training or a staff meeting about the dress code and it just felt... Re- just really out of touch. All of us were pretty young instructors, fresh out of college or in our first jobs. And I love having nice workout clothes now that I can't afford that. But at the time, I really couldn't. There were a lot of fat phobic comments made by senior members of staff there and the owner. None of us were particularly large people, but I would say I'm a very medium-sized person. I remember unprompted the studio owner told me wow, this summer when you're off from teaching and you're just at pure bar all the time, you're going to drop so much weight because you'll be teaching so much. I wasn't trying to lose weight and I worked out very actively at the time. I was very into running. So it just kind of struck me the wrong way and always stuck with me. There were a lot of comments like that, even made in classes that just weren't very positive or depending on your view or where you were in your journey, could have rubbed you the wrong way. Like we're going to burn off this food from Super Bowl Sunday, or you're going to earn your next meal. I actually just looked up how much I was paid because I forgot, and I thought I was paid more than I was. I was only paid $20 per class, included getting there at least 15 or 20 minutes early to open up the studio, greet clients teach the entire class and then be there at least 15 or 20 minutes after to answer questions, check people out if they bought merchandise, etc. Could get like dollar or percentage raises depending on additional certifications for other Pure Bar classes that you taught or just based on merit. So I think I did get like a $2 raise after I'd been there for a while, but it was definitely not worth the money. I think the thing that most people don't realize about Pure Bar is that everything is scripted. So I would spend my days where I wasn't teaching basically learning an entire hour-long script change their choreography so often it's not like you can just learn this one move and stick with it forever make flashcards for each section of my class so for the arms portion the plank portion etc and memorize them and test myself on them the hardest part about being a pure part teacher is studying and learning all of that choreography and then making it seem smooth with the music And teaching and doing all of the hands-on corrections, it's much harder than it sounds. As instructors, we were really pushed to have emotional things to say in class or an aha moment to share. An instructor that I worked with had also received that critique. And so in the next class, she told her story of her eating disorder. And it was a really emotional story, but I feel like, well, I know she was pressured or felt like she needed to share that to have something, like some kind of collateral role to trade with her clients. So many people after came up to her and thanked her for telling her story, but she like later shared with me that she regretted sharing it because she just felt so pressured that she needed to have this personal touch to her classes. Overall, it just really didn't feel like an inclusive place and I was certainly part of the problem because the more you're in it and the more you surround yourself with that, you start to idealize that perfect pure bar figure. I can count on one hand the number of times I taught or saw a minority. Those that came in that were outsiders were treated as such. And there is a significant learning curve when it comes to pure bar. It's a totally different language, it seems like, and a different way of working out or using your body if you're not familiar with group fitness or bar in general or don't have a dance background it it might feel really difficult your first time and I just witnessed so many instructors kind of shame or make new members feel really uncomfortable when trying out their first class and oftentimes they would never come back but it didn't really seem like that was something the owner cared about if they didn't fit the aesthetic of the boutique.
3: Where do I even begin with flywheel? Working there is toxic because it's literally your job to make sure these people feel like they're a part of this cult. You know, we would have people crying, begging us to get into some of these classes because they had to be front row um, for a particular class. They didn't want the back corner. The back corner wasn't good enough for them. They needed to be in front of the instructors. If the instructors knew their names or called them out in class, gag me. They were basically crying. It was like Jesus fucking came in and told them that they were special. You know, the instructors obviously want to be your friend because they Googled you, bitch, and they know you're Forbes 500. They know you got a black card. They know you know X, Y, and Z and get them into concerts on the floor. Like they, the instructors knew what the fuck they were doing. Um, Flywheel a thousand percent allowed these people because of their money to treat us like garbage if they wanted to. I used to have people like throw their black cards at me and be like, what, this, this old thing? And I'm like, yes, that old thing that you have to qualify for and spend quarter million dollars a year. Like, I can't do that, asshole. Like, yes, I'm talking about your black card. Um, They would only use like, you know, the prettiest, skinniest girls that work there to like model the clothing so that they could then get, you know, all these people to buy the merch, which I don't knock them for. Do it. Whatever. They would watch people, like, throw towels in my face. They would watch me get screamed at if someone's seat wasn't, you know, at the fifth level. It was at the fourth level. Um, You know, they would—I would have to sneak people in, like, second song in, set their fucking bike up, and blah, blah, blah. It was all just way too okay. You know, we used to have—I'll never forget, there was this one day— There was a super fucking toxic couple. They were definitely in, like, their late 30s, early 40s, married, kids, whatever, had money. Um, I guess the wife was definitely on to this man cheating on her. So one day, one of the receptionists or the front desk people were like, oh, hey, Miss so-and-so, like, I saw your husband during the 930. And she's like, he was at the 930? Was he by himself? And it just got bad because then the next day she signs up for the same class as him I'm assuming they hadn't seen each other in a couple of days and this shit I mean they just started fighting and you're just like oh my god um two minutes to class do you still want to take the class I have a wait list so if you guys don't um could you kind of take this fight somewhere else we shouldn't allow people's money to fucking control us the way it does and that's just what they did oh with like New instructors or certain time slots aren't filling up. Hey, do you, do your friends want to take a class? Like, we need this class to look full. You need to get your friends here to take this class. You know, if you look at their employment demographics, they were all actors. They were all dancers and whatever. You know, people just trying to make it. Um, And they would abuse the shit out of you, you know, getting there at 5 o'clock in the fucking morning. Oh, but then people would get, like, fucked up at the holiday parties I remember one owner had like just had a baby and like one of the front desk people like made a comment either about the breasts or something like that. And obviously they were fired like off the bat. We had like facilities people that would like, you know, just be real like peeping Toms. And you had to like obviously fire them because people would start being like, hey, I think he's like hanging around the girls locker room after classes or, you know, just garbage shit where you're just like oh this is such a whack-ass company again so we had actors dancers singers you name it as instructors and whatnot as well so then like front desk people i'll never forget they dragged this one girl along like three and a half years promising her she would be a bar instructor for flywheel um and it literally took four years because they couldn't give her up as the front desk girl because all these rich motherfuckers loved her and she was beautiful and skinny and tall so she would model the clothes every time new clothes would come out hey, you have to wear this for the 7.30 class and let them know that it's on the shelves and that it's going to come in these four colors. I mean, she was their moneymaker, but they would drag her along because they were like, don't worry, when the auditions open up, you're going to get it. She never got it for four fucking years. The instructors thinking that they were literally God's gifts in this world. I'm like, calm the fuck down. You teach a spin class, okay? I'm so happy that, you know, you got fans in the 40 to 55 age range. Like, I'm so fucking happy for you, but you need to calm the fuck down. Because being a front desk girl does not mean that people get to disrespect me. Um, As front desk people, I can't knock us because, you know, when you have these rich people, you know, especially in New York, you don't. And the thing is that, like, you don't have to be a celebrity in New York to have money or anywhere. Um, So, you know, enough Googling to find out that so-and-so owns a business that makes them seven million dollars a year or X, Y, and Z. Um, You know, we became nannies for these people. We became um, assistants. We became whatever. And that was even more toxic because then the days you weren't working and they came in to take class, they expected everything from you. Um, Oh, you're going to pick up my kids at three o'clock, right? Okay, see you at dinner. Oh, look, I know the front desk girl. (laughs) She works for me. I'm in here. And it's like, oh, my God, no, that's actually not it, bitch. I'm just trying to pay my rent. Can you please politely fuck off? I'll see you later. It was sick. I mean, it was just sick.
0: Written submission number two. I worked at a cycle studio in Western Pennsylvania that was a SoulCycle dupe. It was independently owned by two women and they also offered yoga and bar classes. They added a few other classes recently that were the exact copies of more well-known studios and methodologies in NYC. Their whole vibe was community and working out to the beat of the music, positive vibes, sweat tribe, let's lift each other up, etc. Nothing they did was original. When they first opened, it immediately became this fanatical thing where everyone was obsessed and taking up to three classes a day. Looking back now, everyone who became super involved were clearly at some type of transitional or insecure period. I had always worked out, but never in a cult studio like that where they guide you through all the motivating words and music. There were times where you'd leave with goosebumps on your skin. It was truly amazing when you didn't know anything deeper about it. I, along with many others, wanted to work there. They had a work trade program where you could get free, unlimited membership for coming early or staying late to clean up after a class, work the front desk, check people in, or watch their children in daycare. Most clients who started the work trade program really had their sights set on eventually becoming instructors. The owner is a narcissist. No one was good enough to teach there. Still now, the only people who teach there are her relatives and close friends. The funny part being some of them aren't even certified to teach what they teach. But she held the possibility of teaching over the work trade employees' heads to get them to keep working for her for free. She'd let us audition and then tell us we were getting there, maybe keep working hard and try again in a few months. We were expected to put in a lot of hours every week and none of us were ever paid a single dime. And yet they still acted like they were doing us a favor. There were so many homophobic or racist comments. The instructors were all obsessed with calling each other lesbians. Capri leggings or braids made you look like a quote unquote dyke. Anytime a client would be super nice or interested in befriending an instructor, they'd joke she was a lesbian. There were maybe two women of color who went to the studio and one of them complained after an excessively offensive song that repeatedly used the N-word was played in class. After she left, the owner said, quote, it's not my fault you can't handle your own culture. We even saw the owner use the word racism in air quotes one day. The vibe was absolutely cultish. Us work trade people hated being there and felt so uncomfortable, yet we kept going back. The owner would say we weren't allowed to talk about anything that happens at the studio outside of the studio because that's gossip and bad vibes, even though all they did was talk shit about every client that walked out the door. When COVID started, they swiftly outed themselves as COVID deniers and posted endless QAnon conspiracy theories all summer long. They never followed CDC guidelines and told the employees they straight up were not allowed to wear masks in the studio because it was, quote, bad vibes. They used essential oils to clean equipment, even during the pandemic. I can't even manage to get to all of the crazy shit I witnessed. There was a group text with the studio manager, one instructor, and all of the work trade people. They'd text sometimes as late as midnight, asking someone to volunteer to work a 5.45 a.m. class, and when no one would respond, they'd just go back and forth with each other, calling us lazy and ungrateful. I've had six-figure jobs that wouldn't dream of texting me at midnight. We were unpaid workers berated for not volunteering ourselves for a 5 a.m. class. When you were sick, you were still expected to come work your shift. Not just come clean up, but for some reason they also demanded you take the class beforehand because it would mess with the flow of a class If an instructor had less people than they prepared for. There were a few times we got screamed at for putting the toilet paper rolls on the wrong way, paper over versus paper under. The owner had a tiny daycare area and she couldn't say no to clients, so sometimes there would end up being literally 20 kids in this room with one unpaid employee. We would say it was unsafe and got ignored. The instructors all acted like they were Mick Jagger before a big show. You weren't allowed to talk to or interrupt them before a class for any reason. If you didn't prepare a room exactly to their liking, you'd get several angry texts about it. An instructor once turned off the music in the middle of class and lectured the participants for not having enough energy and that they were allowing the class to fall flat. They would say the class was too slow or not working hard enough, that they didn't know why we bothered to come if we were going to half-ass it. It was a choreography-based cycle class and if the participants were offbeat, the instructors would leave class and complain that the front desk shouldn't allow certain people in the front row because they were so bad. Or they'd blame a lackluster teaching performance on the clients, saying they sucked too bad and it was distracting them. They really all just wanted peak athletes to walk into their class, deliver high-energy performances, and leave. They all kind of forgot that they were there for clients and it wasn't the other way around. The amount of times I would find people crying somewhere in that place was unreal. I did hear the studio had a handbook about how instructors were all supposed to portray themselves on social media and keep their bodies up. This one client used to come three times a day and was visibly dealing with some type of eating disorder. She was given so much positive feedback about how skinny she looked. The instructors would all go on days-long cleanses of juice or bone broth and then encourage everyone to do the same. It was honestly the most toxic place I've ever worked a large group of us who who left still talk and we all still don't understand it. We all own the fact that we were in a bad mental space to even be a part of something like that for as long as we did. And to be honest, if it weren't for them not following COVID guidelines, we might even still be there. It's honestly fascinating how aware of the toxicity we all were and we kept going back. These instructors would say these incredibly inspirational, motivating things in class, And then you'd walk out and see them saying somebody was dressed like a lesbian and it was such a mindfuck. Like, is everything that goes on in these classes completely fake and contrived?
4: I was a teacher and employee at Laughing Lotus Yoga Center in Manhattan in Brooklyn from 2012 to 2017. Laughing Lotus was most known for its glitter-covered studio floors, pink graffiti walls, disco ball, top-of-the-line sound system, and studio owner Dana Flynn, who is frequently billed as the Janis Joplin of yoga. When I started working at Lotus, I had already been a yoga and pilates instructor for several years, and it seemed like it was the coolest place to be a far cry from the tranquil white midtown studios I was used to, with teachers blasting Jay-Z in class, and over a dozen daily classes were filled with hundreds of people. I loved going there. The flow was challenging and intense, and Dana Flynn specifically seemed like she had really figured out life. She was joyful, she was exciting, and she was energizing, contagious. Most employees ended up terrified of disappointing or disagreeing with Dana and eventually of even being in the same room with her. It wasn't uncommon to find several teachers hiding in the coat closet that passed for a teacher's lounge if Dana was in the studio. She always commented on our appearances, whether we were teachers or desk employees. For me, I was always told to cut my hair and to put on some lipstick, and she was so thrilled when I did finally cut my hair. New students to the studio would joke to us that they thought we were a cult. And we probably did give off a cult-like energy with our pink hair and our tight clothes and our wild smiles and our laudations for our founder. We would go to her classes and sit as close to the front of her room as we could. We wanted so much to get her to say that, yes, we were the good one. We were doing it right. At meetings, at staff meetings, you'd see who this woman, who was so lauded and worshipped publicly, really was. She would curse, which doesn't matter so much, but she would make racist comments about Black men's genitalia. And eventually it became clear that she was an alcoholic as well. She was not the enlightened, liberated, free being that she presented herself to be. In 2016 or 2017, Dana announced that she was opening a studio in the 7th Ward of New Orleans that she was calling the Church of Yoga that she was opening in a historically black church that she had purchased. She assured us again and again that it was with the support of the community that she was welcomed and wanted, and many people were excited to see her. Eventually, it became clear this was a lie, and many local community members of the New Orleans community banded together to publicly call her out in advance of the studio opening. She hemmed and hawed and returned to New York, where she held a large staff meeting and cried to us, I didn't know I was racist, but I'm racist, and claimed that she wanted to make changes. At the time, I was interested in social justice organizing in the wake of the Trump election and offered, along with another coworker who was a social worker, to develop a yoga and social justice teacher training curriculum. She was extremely excited about the idea and spent a few weeks texting me and emailing me with surge training links and links to James Baldwin books, but eventually she got back on a plane to New Orleans and went radio silent. A few weeks after that, we got an email from the head manager of the Manhattan studio that while he was excited about our enthusiasm, He felt it would be better if they kick it up to the senior teachers, who themselves were not interested in offering our curriculum. I decided to leave Laughing Lotus over this. And in May of 2017, I gave notice and felt such immense relief when I finally left. What I hadn't prepared for, though, was how leaving meant that I was out. People I had been close to for years, including the woman who had officiated my wedding, simply stopped speaking to me. A few years later, in June of 2020, in the wake of the George Floyd murder and the racial justice protests across the country, I was woken up one day to a flood of messages from former co-workers on my phone. I scrolled social media and I saw handfuls of people I knew calling Dana Flynn out for racism, for her toxic workplace environment, and for a number of harmful and disturbing behaviors which caused harm to an untold number of people. Not long after this, the studio in the 7th Ward shut down, and the studio in New York City permanently severed ties with Dana. The San Francisco location, owned by Dana's ex, Jasmine, which had closed during the pandemic, also issued a statement distancing itself from Dana, and Jasmine specifically issued a long statement admonishing Dana. In response to this, former employees of both Jasmine and Dana came forward criticizing not just Dana, but also Jasmine and the entire system at Lotus for the the unhealthy and toxic workplaces they had overseen for decades. The glittery facade did not match the shadowy
5: insides, not one bit. The studio that I worked at, it was a high-intensity workout that is music-driven, beat-driven. We did a lot of cardio, a lot of sculpting, a lot of breath work. it did very much have a cold energy, very much had a cold vibe. The aesthetic is all very, you know, it's neutral light tones, very earthy, but very feminine. There's an emphasis on crystals. It felt very elevated, uh, <laughs> it felt very rich when i when I started working there, I was a student and really admired the practice, really admired the people that were uh running the business and the and the head teachers and the lead instructors um, they were all incredibly uh angelic to me I think would be the the best way to put it in this method as someone that really enjoys movement and enjoys processing emotion and feeling and experience through the body in that way, it felt extremely cathartic. You know, you're moving as one and there's sound and, you know, it's repetitive. There's a specific energy that um, is, is curated and you mix that with adrenaline and endorphins and music that you know and have memories and experiences to like you know that's the perfect cocktail to elicit an emotional response from somebody the the founder was very much like a mama hen and we all wanted to be the favorite child and there's like certain personalities that in that i think the founder had so I'm not sure if if you've ever experienced someone like this before but they're they're kind of they feel out of reach. They feel unavailable when you get a piece of their attention or if they make eye contact with you or if they they see you and you feel seen by them all of a sudden you feel this like feeling of like oh my gosh, I feel special. So there is this unspoken competition I think between both teachers and students I saw it with students all the time they'd want to speak to the founder after class and if they could get the attention then it was like you could see them light up and then you could see the ones that felt very dismissed and I think that's what it was there is either you were seen for whatever reason or you were dismissed the this specific community was very much they trusted the founder. Um, they they didn't want anyone else to teach them besides the founder. But it really was something where I felt like I had to truly emulate and become, um, in a very unhealthy way, the the founder of this method to get people to even come to my class. Um, and for a while, a, a while there, you know, I had the nickname of like being the mini me. And that felt great. And I was like, oh, it's working. People are coming to my class. You know, my my personal community here is growing. My class size is growing, which then, of course, means I'm making more money. You know, so it's all really positive. So, you know, then I'm like, okay, this is what it is I need to do. And in that, I completely lost myself. There were many, many emotional breakdowns and breakthroughs. It it very much is like encouraged, and I will say what's wild, when I saw somebody crying in class, or if I saw someone getting emotional in class, I got excited because I was like, it's working, I'm, you know, I'm cracking these people open, they're feeling something. It made me only want to like dig deeper, which in retrospect is really dangerous to do. and especially in that environment where the intensity is is so high and you know for me it got to a point where i myself felt so emotionally exhausted and so emotionally raw and so worn out after every single class because at the end of the day in order for you to create a space for people to feel like they can be vulnerable and to express you have to get there too and i realized that after Taking and teaching so many of these classes, I got to a point where I felt like shit. And I got to a part, I was like, why am I continuing to dig into the same thing? It's like, it's like you had, you like fell, you scraped your knee and you just, you scab a little bit and then you peel the scab off. There's only so much you can do in a sense of processing and healing enough workout class and also remembering that it's not a conversation. You could be asking questions and igniting thought and inspiring thought, but it's not a true back and forth. So the person at the front of the room is talking at the room. My anxiety, my stress, my, my entire being was just in, con- in a constant state of shock. You know, it got to a point where I was both in physical and emotional pain and I went to the founder and I explained how I was feeling and I was just so disappointed by the response um, that I had gotten because it was very much like, well, then maybe you shouldn't teach here. Almost like my mother had said, like, if I had gone to my mother and I was like, I don't feel good and I need your help and I don't know what's happening. And my mother said, well, maybe you should just go look somewhere else. Maybe this relationship, maybe me being your mom isn't working anymore. And so it just got to a point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know, they were my family. They were what I, who I thought were my people. And it was like one day being like, holy shit. What is going on? I need to get the fuck
0: out of here. Written submission number three. I worked at Dance Body NYC. Most people that are hired are ex dancers, young, new to the city dancers, or housewives. The way Dance Body structures their choreography, which is month one you learn, month two you perfect, month three you perform, helps people form a habit and stay motivated to keep coming in. Trainers do every movement full out the entire class. They do not take a break to watch. Many clients would often take double classes, dance and then sculpt. The difficulty of the movements attracted those who were looking to have some time to burn, to turn off their brain and focus on their body's performance. This was also a great business move when it came to private lessons, since most clients took one to two private lessons a week to go over choreography on top of several group classes. Since the pandemic, Dance Body has been adding in even more sculpting, toning and stability classes for a healthier approach. Clients overtraining with back-to-back classes seven days a week also took a toll on trainers who would have injuries and shin splints. Though I was not an instructor, I did witness many of the auditions, and there was a clear bias towards white muscular brunettes. Once we launched online classes, I helped present the necessity of having a diverse instructor base when it came to age, body type, ethnicity, etc. Though it was acknowledged, no change was implemented. Even when it came to the front desk staff, those who did not have the dancer body type or dress in the way everyone else did were ridiculed. For example, one of the front desk staff members would wear capri leggings and a layer under their uniform top. Someone from exec eventually asked me to talk to her about her style and I had to hold my ground since we provided the staff with one to two uniform shirts, had a detailed guideline to what to wear with it and her outfits were well within our guidelines. So this wardrobe feedback was just fashion policing since she was the only one that did not wear the newest, most expensive athleisure like aloe, Lululemon, or Splits 59. The founder can be very warm and giving to her employees. However, it is only upon reflecting and now working with a brand that has work-life balance that I see some of the manipulation and toxic culture that was created. Performative hustle was really valued at Dance Body. Since the culture there was meant to feel like family and like we owned the business, we were expected to answer slacks anywhere from studio opening at 6 a.m. until midnight. Everything was urgent. You had to be available 24-7 and everything was nitpicked. I saw a manager get called out by the CEO for having the toilet paper not hung the correct way. Mind you, we did not have a toilet paper standard at that time. The night before the Williamsburg opening, all of the managers were still at the studio at 2 a.m., while the CEO and one other instructor were redoing some decor placement with no end in sight. One time, the COO, who was later fired for her behavior, sent a multiple paragraph slack to the whole company, yelling about how the CEO stayed up late fixing all the copy for a marketing email that was going out the next day. She should have called out whoever was meant to actually lead that marketing spot, but instead she suggested that the entire company needed to step up and have the passion that the CEO has. Quickly responding to every email and Slack within seconds, even if you were taking a class, was valued. Not having time to take a break for lunch was valued. Upon hiring, the CEO makes it known in her exact words that this is, quote, not a 40-hour work week. We expect you to give it your all since we are making something great here. I was one of the highest paid employees at $55,000. When it came to reviews or any time to discuss a pay increase, the CEO had a very strategic way of talking around it. I brought up a salary alignment for new duties that were assigned to me and was told to wait for my one year mark. Once one year came along, the COO and CEO bounced me back and forth for ages saying I should talk to the other. Dancers and artists in general are used to being exploited for their time and craft and these bad practices definitely bleed into boutique fitness. We were given yearly retreats and some perks that were meant to make up for the lack of pay. Sadly, a bunch of us former employees joke that it took a pandemic for us to leave. It wasn't until working for my current fit tech startup that I started to see what a healthier version of company culture can be. You can still hustle and work with pivots while valuing mental health.
6: I worked for Orange Theory Fitness in the Upper West Side in Manhattan. I was a desk slash admin or slash whatever kind of person you can think of. I did. A, I wore a lot of hats, just never was inside the studio. I was more introducing people, giving tours, signing people up, et cetera. When I started working there, I was actually already a client of the program. And I did feel like I got almost groomed into the position. I had taken a class because one of my friends had done it and they were like, oh, you really got to try this. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll give it a shot. And a lot of people in in the work that I do go there to stay in shape so of course i did it and they noticed that and they noticed i was enthusiastic and they slowly began to like drop hints like oh you should you should work here oh yeah you know you'd be really good at the position if you thought about this oh the hours aren't that bad and you can make a lot of money doing it at the time i'd probably say i was suffering from a little bit of depression as well that had originally catapulted me to wanting to better myself better my body I was at the end of a bad breakup people Became fanatical at Orange Theory because there's a level of positivity that's undeniable within the studio. However, I think toxic positivity is definitely a better way to describe it. You were only doing good if the person if you were better than the person that was next to you. But they'd always remind you that you're a team, you're not competing with anyone, but always try to hit point one. Mile power fast and that person next to you. And so it was always this little competition going on. I think that's why it's it's so successful is because people around you are, are helping you improve yourself, although we all are at different levels. And after I kind of left the Orange Theory market, I realized that that was kind of maybe not the best thing because there's so many people with different styles of bodies and different levels of fitness. So my boss, Orange Theory, was another prime example of toxic positivity. Every idea that we presented to him was amazing and the best thing he's ever heard, but then of course he wouldn't do anything with it and he would just kind of talk you up just to bring you back down into reality. But our like head instructor, I don't know, he was like the, the, the most unattainable version of you that you could ever get. So he was almost like, I wouldn't say he was a father figure ever, but he was definitely a figure head of some sort. Other instructors would have like no people in their class and then his were completely packed at all times. And it was almost like the studio was built just for him. He's probably one of the nicest people I've ever met outside of the studio room, but he definitely had that air of him. And I could see why you could feed into that cult-like system. We'd be rewarded for things like doing the dry try or getting people to sign up for the dry try, which I can't remember at all. We have to run a 5k. You have to do a bunch of like exercises and row 5,000 meters or something like that. Forgive me for not remembering all of it, but we would encourage these people who definitely were not ready for that kind of activity and then we'd be rewarded. Yeah, it was, uh, people definitely felt like if they didn't do these special events that we did, like the dry try or, oh gosh, the rowing challenge or the marathon challenge, that they weren't utilizing their membership to the best of their ability. And because of that, they were failing at Orange Theory which is kind of insane to think about. But the the payment system was built that way. In order to maximize your time in the, in the gym, you had to get the unlimited package and you couldn't complete any of these challenges unless you had the unlimited package. But there were so many steps for me to get that like extra $35 on my paycheck, which I wouldn't even see until two or three months down the line because these people had to stay with the program. And I had to follow up a bunch of times and do it, but I missed any little tiny detail. I would lose out on that money. So this giant thing from earlier that they had talked about where I could make a bunch of money, every turn they tried to take it away from you. And it was really disheartening because sometimes if you took a week vacation, you'd miss it. I definitely didn't make enough though to work that job. It was the point where I had to find a second job, even though I was working four to five days a week. One of my favorite moments, though, was the first week that I worked at Orange Theory. We all got sent at four in the morning to this like conference in New Jersey. And it was just the people from the Orange Theory franchisees that we were working under. We all had to go there like two or three days in a row. And it was miserable. It was a miserable drive from, from Upper West Side over to there at four in the morning. And they went there and we were like essentially ingrained with like this is why Orange Theory Matters videos. And these are the people that that affect, that you affect. And this is why it's amazing for you. You're not here for yourself. You're here for those people and you're making their lives better. And then here's all the people before you that came before you that are made their lives better because they made other people's lives better by making money for the studio by doing this job. It was insane. And I honestly got very caught up in it because I was already groomed from my first class that I took way back, like eight months prior. So they had already put these juices into my head and we all had to sit down in these giant rows and one by one, we all got called on to say why Orange Theory Fitness will change our lives to help other people. Like, why is it, why are we there to help other people and how does Orange Theory make us a better person? I wish that I was making that up. It was like people were crying. People were like spilling all this tea that was like, I was like, we are work people. This is crazy. But I was caught up in it, too. And I was shedding some tears of these stories. And all these stories were beautiful and blah, blah, blah. But you really found out that they were honestly picking people that were at a point in their life where they could be manipulated slightly to take a lower paying job for the chance at a higher pay where they could still possibly take all that money away from you at any point. In conclusion of all of that, though, I think that the environment for the guests at Orange Theory is really, really positive. I think that if I had stayed as a guest, I would have enjoyed myself, paid my money to the company, Gone to my classes, had a wonderful time, looked better, felt better, and probably been able to get through my depression a lot quicker had I just stayed that way. but i but I elongated my pain by joining the ranks of these of these people
0: once again, degenerate ladies and gentlemen, and those of you who identify as neither, I'm Ali Weiss, and you've been listening to tales of taboo. You can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Allie Weiss World, and the podcast on TikTok at Tales of Taboo. If you enjoyed what you heard, and you know what, especially if you didn't, please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. It's truly the quickest and easiest way to support the show. I know all podcasters ask for this, but my case is unique because the easier it is for new listeners to find the show, the more anonymous confessions we potentially have access to, and the bigger and more impactful the show can become. I also have the cutest sweatshirts and G-strings emblazoned with Degenerate available as merch, which you can purchase from me via Instagram DM. Again, that's at Allie Weiss World. I have sizes small through 2XL available. Tales of Taboo is conceived, produced, and narrated by me, Ali Weiss. Audio production by Isabel McMahon, Christophopoulos, WTF Media, and Gotham Production. Cover photo by Erica Flynn. Cover art by Kristen Montenegro. Theme song by Krista Dathopoulos. And, of course, none of this would be possible without the time, effort, and trust of each and every anonymous confessor. From the bottom of my heart, thank you.